0: Welcome to Journey in the Word with Pastor Randy Mosher of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley, located in Hagerstown, Maryland. Please join us every weekday as our pastor takes us verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Today, we're beginning in chapter 8 of Revelation, beginning the study of the trumpets, viewing also the importance of prayer and worship, and who we are offering prayer and worship to. So if you're able, grab your Bibles and join us as we continue our Journey
1: in the Word. Well, let's look at Revelation chapter 8. We're going to read a couple of verses, and then we're going to pray. So when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the angel, or the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. There were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves. To sound. You know, we began looking at this last week. I kind of touched on this on the back end of chapter 7, but there's this 30 minutes of silence, you know, that t- takes place between all of the things that have occurred before and what's about to happen now as we begin to move through this chapter. And as I said to you, you know, we may not grasp the concept of that silence, but you know, there's a lot of reasons for it. I, I think the Lord is just setting the stage and preparing and maybe giving a brief pause for people to think, you know, about what's happening on the earth so that they'll turn to him. But just imagine, I mean, 30 minutes of absolute silence after everything has been taking place. that The silence had to be deafening to the people when this will occur in that day. But now John sees these, these seven angels, and they're standing up, and, and they're given these seven trumpets, and they're about to sound those trumpets as they go. And, of course, here in the midst of this silence, these the, the seven trumpets, they haven't sounded yet, but, but, but you can sense what's coming, can't you? You know, I, I don't know how many guys, well, I'm sure you've all heard the 1812 overture, right? So, you know, one of the things that, that's amazing to me, I, I've seen that down in D.C. in particular in a couple of the fireworks displays. You know, they're playing this as it's going and everything else. But, but one of the things that happens before that thing breaks open is there those little riffs that take place, you know? You hear a little theme that just kind of leads to what's going to be the bigger theme, but it's quiet, and it comes and it goes, and it comes and it goes. But you know what? That, that's, that, that little bit of, of just in and out is setting the stage for something. You know, the most powerful part's about to come, but, but before that grand explosion, you have all of that going. It's, pre- it's just preceded by that quiet refrain. The music just gets hushed and, and almost silent, and you can, you can barely hear the instruments playing. But you know, you know that that hushed and, and passive part of the symphony is just setting the stage for what's about to happen. It's a prelude to what's about to happen. You know, Tchaikovsky, when he wrote that piece, he intentionally inserted that quiet section so that it would take you to a place where when the final refrain was un- unleashed, it'd, it'd just powerfully overwhelm you. It'd just overwhelm you. And, and if you've seen it performed live, you, you will see the brass section stand up before that part comes. They stand up with their instruments. They lift them to their mouths in that quiet section, but they don't blow yet. They don't blow. They're just waiting for the right moment. And then it comes. Boom! And that's the same sense we get as we look at this section of Scripture of what's happening here in this verse. There is a silence. There is a dramatic silence. And in the midst of the silence, you can picture these angels lifting their trumpets to their mouths and preparing to blow. And you know that when they do, the silence. It's going to be broken. The sound when it's broken is going to be deafening. This is the first thing that the silence is intended to accomplish. It's setting the stage for the powerful events that are about to take place. It's, it's, it's a dramatic silence inserted so that when this refrain is unleashed, when it's unleashed, it'll powerfully impact and overwhelm everything and everyone. It's important to note a couple of things in this as we look at it. First of all, Jewish tradition has long held that there are seven angels who stand continually before the throne of God. And and here it seems that this belief is validated because here John literally sees seven angels standing before the throne. Second, even more significant than this is the angels themselves, is the trumpets. More significant than the angels is the trumpets. In the Old Testament, trumpets were were significant instruments because they served several purposes. Number one, trumpets were used to sound the alarm for war. They blow the trumpets to signal the forces to assemble and to prepare for the battle that was about to take place. Secondly, trumpets were used to create fear in the hearts of the enemy as they heard them being blown they were used kind of like the rebel yell was in the Civil War. You know, I'm a, I'm a Yankee. But I read the accounts of the Southern Army and how the rebels, when they would go into an attack, they'd they'd have this shriek yell that they would do that just struck fear in the hearts of the Union lines before they ever came. They knew it was coming. And at times the enemy or the, the forces would actually, they'd break and they'd run before the first shot was ever fired because of the fear that this was creating in their hearts. And so too, trumpets were used in ancient battles for that very purpose, to strike fear into the hearts of the enemy. And third, trumpets were also used to call a general assembly of God's people together. For example, the Bible tells us that trumpets were used to call the people to assemble so that God could give them the Ten Commandments. Do you remember that? They, the, the, the trumpet sounded so that they would come and gather so that God could give them those commands. This Third purpose is why many people have concluded that the rapture of the church hasn't, been, hasn't happened yet at this point in the Revelation because the trumpet of the assembly hasn't been blown yet. They point to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 through 52, which says, Behold, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. They point to these verses and they say, Aha, you see, the church will be taken up when the trumpet sounds. And here in Revelation, we see the trumpet about to sound, but it's being sounded during the tribulation, not before. Therefore, we know that the church will be going through at least part of the tribulation. But you see, what they miss, what they miss is the fact that there are two kinds of trumpets described in the scriptures. There are trumpets associated with the angels, and, and there are trumpets that are associated with God himself. And it's always the trumpet associated with God himself that's used to gather the assembly of his people, not the trumpets blown by angels. Even the reference to the trumpet in 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4 is the trumpet of God, not of angels. He'll be sounding the trumpet that will gather his people to himself in the rapture. But here in Revelation 8, these aren't trumpets that are being blown by God. These are trumpets that are going to be blown instead by his angels. And as such, they serve a completely different purpose. These aren't trumpets that are about to be sounded for the rapture to gather God's people together in the air, but rather they are trumpets that are about to be blown to signal the next phase of the war that God is waging against sinful man on earth. These are the trumpets that aren't intended to, to, these aren't the trumpets that are designed to give hope of our deliverance, but they're trumpets that are being blown to strike fear in the heart of God's enemies and to sound the battle cry for the host of heaven as more terrible weapons of judgment are, are about to be hurled at sinful man on the earth. Don't make the mistake that many people make as they fail to differentiate these kinds of trumpets and those who are sounding them or else it's going to confuse your theology in regard to the rapture of the church. There will be a trumpet that sounds for the rapture of the church, but it's going to be one that's sounded by God, and I firmly believe that that's going to occur before the tribulation even begins because you and I, as believers in Christ, are what? Not appointed to wrath and the judgment of God, as Scripture tells us. But back to the silence. Also note another important reason as to why it's being inserted here at this point in the opening of the seals. Because God and and the heavenly hosts know about what's to take place on the earth. They know how great and terrible the the events that are going to now follow, these events of judgment, how bad they're truly going to be. And they know that these things are about to be unleashed on the earth and on mankind and that it's going to surpass anything that's happened thus far. They know that when the things begin to happen that are about to happen that are going to be unleashed by these things, there will be no more let up. There will be no more let up. They'll, They'll just keep on coming wave after wave after terrible wave after terrible wave. And they'll be more terrible because most, if not all of them, will be coming directly from the hand of God himself and not through some secondary vessel of judgment as he's used with some of the sealed judgments, such as was the case with the Antichrist. Although the Antichrist will still be active during this period of time, these will be events... These will be events that will be coming directly from the hand of God. God is about to unleash his wrath as mankind has never seen it unleashed before. And for this reason, there's silence for a brief period before it all begins. There's silence because like an inferno, the heat of God's wrath is just building. There's a fire being stoked within God in this 30-minute time period, a fire that when he releases it, it'll consume everything in its path but there's silence also because God knows what the result of the next phase of his judgment will bring to, God, to mankind. He knows the tremendous suffering. He knows the tremendous destruction that's about to take place. It's not that God wants to, to, to level this, this heated destruction against men or that he delights in bringing it. He doesn't. He created man, and the Bible clearly tells us what? That he loves mankind that he created. And as such, even though as creator, he has a right to to take man's life, and he does take man's life at times, he never takes pleasure in doing this to anyone. Yeah, we know that the scriptures are replete with statements about God's hatred for his enemies. Passages like Psalm chapter 5, verses 4 and 6, which says, for you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. You shall destroy those who speak speak falsehood, the Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. We cannot escape the reality that God hates those who set themselves against him, but we must read passages such as these within the whole context of who and what God is. We got to always see that these verses in context of, of his nature and his character and nature of uh, uh, both justice and compassion And unlike human beings, God can perfectly be these two opposites at the same time. He can be both just and he can be both compassionate. Equally, At the same time, God can actually hate with intensity, and yet at the same time, he can also love with intensity. Both coexist within God at the same time. God hates without question what sinful man does. He hates what sinful man becomes. He hates the sinful rebellion that exists within man. He hates what sinful man represents in the world that he's created, and yet he loves each and every sinful man, woman, and child with an intensity that you and I can never understand or fathom. That's what makes him God. It doesn't make us. When I get mad at somebody, I'm mad at them. I have a hard time loving them. I have trouble sometimes with the admonition of of love those, you know, who despise you and spitefully use you. I have a hard time with it because I am not God. I am not like him in in my very being as a human being. Oh, but he's changing my heart so that I can be like him. He's teaching me that, and yet at the same time, I'm imperfect in that because as a human being, I'm one directional, and I would argue that most of us are. We either love or we hate, and there's no combination of the two, but he can, and he does. He can be both. And as such, although Scripture will tell us in one place that he rejoices in destruction, it also tells us in other places that he grieves with all of his heart because of the destruction that man brings upon himself through his rebellion against him. Never think that there is any man, woman, or child that God delights in pouring out his judgment upon because to do so is to fail to understand how God thinks and feels about human beings. Peter understood this aspect of God's nature. and That's why he wrote in Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some kind slackness. In other words, God will make good his promise to judge sinful man. It's his intent, even his divine desire to judge him for his sin. Yet at the same time, Peter goes on to say, but his long suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Peter says that both of these desires exist within God simultaneously. And so the silence is about both the building of God's wrath as he prepares to judge man, and yet at the same time, it's about his love for sinful man as he grieves over what he knows is about to happen to him as his wrath is revealed. He's still delaying. He's still giving time for repentance so that many, as many as possible, will, will escape the eternal implications of what's about to come upon him. I sincerely believe that there's something important in all of this for us to see as God's people. We need to hate what God hates. Now, I do think we need to hate what God hates. You know, Psalm 139 verses 21 and 22 makes this very clear. Psalm 139 verse 21 says, Do I not hate them, O Lord, who you hate? And Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. But even though we're to hate those that God hates, we also need to love them as God loves them. We need to do that. We shouldn't be too quick to close the door of our hearts toward them and to, to revel in the judgment that's coming upon them. But instead, we need to spend time in silence. Time in silence, just pleading for them pleading for them because we know how terrible the judgment will be when it comes upon them. We need to allow Christ to give us his heart for the lost so that we don't seal their fate in our own hearts and minds. We need to allow his heavenly silence to consume us because it's causing us to spend time just praying for them, praying that they're going to find Christ and escape the terrible judgments that await them if their lives don't change. Well, you mean I'm supposed to be doing that for that person who did that to me? Yeah, yeah. You mean I'm supposed to be praying for that politician that's just spreading all of those progressive policies that's so anti-Christian? Yes. You mean that vile person that did that particular sin, I'm supposed to be praying for it? Yes, yes. It may be hard, but that's God's heart. That's God's heart. No, he's not going to receive them if they don't repent. But he doesn't love them any less. He doesn't love them any less, and nor should we. So here in this passage, there, there is a God-imposed silence that's allowing all of heaven time to reflect on the divine fury that's about to be released on the sinful world. And yet, we see that even through though the release of his wrath is inevitable, God does not unleash it quickly. But he takes a momentary pause before unleashing it because ultimately it's his desire that none would perish. This should be our heart as well. What judgments is he going to release? What, what, tr- what, what will these trumpet soundings unleash? Well, John will tell us in the remainder of this chapter. Look at verse 3. He says, Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. And so now we see another angel. He t- takes the center stage as he approaches the altar of God in heaven with this golden censer. He's given incense to place in the censer. Censers hung on a chain and they were generally brass-like with little openings on them and they would put the incense inside and the aroma would just kind of flow out of it. But, but here we see this happening, and which tells, this verse tells us that he's going to use to offer it to God along with the prayers of all the saints. This verse reminds us of something we looked at in detail back in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 8, where we were told in that verse, Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And as we examined that verse, we talked about how this scene in heaven is the fulfillment of of things that the Old Testament pointed to, things that are the fulfillment of what the Old Testament tabernacle foreshadowed. The Old Testament tabernacle, its furniture, its ministries that took place there were all intended to foreshadow and point to the true tabernacle that exists in heaven and to the ministry of Jesus Christ as our great high priest. That's why in Exodus 25 verse 9, God commanded Moses, according to all that I show you, that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all of its furnishings, just so you shall make it. He commanded Moses to build the tabernacle and all of its furnishings to the exact standards that he gave him because he intended for the earthly tabernacle and its ministries to be a reflection of the tabernacle that exists in heaven. And our study of these things in the Old Testament and here in Revelation have proven this to be true. I mean, just think about the similarities that we've discovered so far just in our study of Revelation. Just as the tabernacle had a door of entry, we found in Revelation 4, 1, that there is a door in heaven that provides entry. After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. Just as there was a molten sea or a brass laver in the tabernacle, we found in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 6 that there's a sea in heaven as well. Before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal. Just as there was a golden lampstand in the tabernacle, so too we found in Revelation 1 and verse 12 that there is a golden lampstand in heaven. In fact, there are seven of them, seven re- reflecting the number of completion or perfection. It says, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy. And I'm sorry, um, then, I, then I turned, I'm sorry, verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And just as there was a mercy seat in the tabernacle, remember the mercy seat, a place where the high priest would come in and sprinkle with blood, but it was a place where God, his presence physically dwelt in the tabernacle. But just as there was a mercy seat there, Hebrews chapter four and verse 16 tells us that such a seat exists in heaven. It tells us, let us therefore come boldly before the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. See, we come to the mercy seat now but we can physically go there, each and every one of us. And now here we find that just as there was an altar of incense in the tabernacle, there is such an altar in heaven. We see here this angel with this censer and incense, things that are clearly associated with the earthly tabernacle, things that are associated with the ministry of prayer that took place at the altar of incense in the earthly tabernacle. But now these things are being associated with the real tabernacle that exists in heaven. Now, some have taken this passage to an even greater extent, suggesting that this angel is none other than Jesus Christ performing his high priestly function of intercession. But I don't think that that's the case here in this passage. Even though at this very moment Jesus is in heaven, you can be assured of it. He is in heaven even now, making intercession for you and for me. And I'm so grateful for that because I need his intercession. I'm just telling you. You know, I mess more things up in this life than I can count on my hands, fingers, toes, and everybody else is in the room. You know, I need his intercession continually. I need it for my weaknesses. I need it even in my strengths because my strengths fall so far short. We need that intercession. He's doing it for us, even right now. And even though Jesus is at times presented in Scripture as the angel of the Lord, which he is oftentimes presented in Scriptures, there's something different about the angel in this passage. Verse 3 says, then another angel. In the Greek, this word another literally means of the same kind. Another angel of the same kind. In other words, this angel is of the same kind as the angels that were described to us in the verses that preceded this one, the same kind as the seven angels that we see here before the throne of God. Therefore, there's no reason for us to conclude that John is symbolically speaking of Jesus. He's speaking of some angelic being in this passage. And even though this angel doesn't depict Jesus, it's still important for us to know that he's performing that ministry of intercession for us, as I said. I'm so grateful that he does. But here, before anything else happens, we find this angel coming before God with this censer and and the incense, and as the sweet plumes of smoke are rising from the incense as it rises before God, it tells us, so do the prayers of the saints, and here we might, might be another reason for this silence. There's silence because of the prayers of the saints. Because of the prayers of the saints. There's silence because God is taking the prayers of the saints seriously in this moment. He has hushed all of heaven so that he can hear what it is that they're crying out to him. It's as though God is saying, shh, be quiet. My people are praying. Be quiet. They're praying. I want to hear what it is that they're saying to me. I want to savor the sweet smell of the plumes of the prayers as they're rising before me. Just wait. Be silent for a while as I take all of this in, you see. If we could only grasp how God sees our prayers. If we could only grasp how God sees our prayers, how seriously he takes them, how how blessed he is by them. Yeah, God's blessed by our prayers. This, This verse alone tells us that. He's blessed by it because it's a sweet-smelling aroma to him. I believe that it'd change our entire attitude about prayer. I think it'd change my attitude about prayer. Even though this verse is depicting a special moment in heaven, I believe that God responds to our prayers in the same way. He stops everything that he's doing. Think about that for a moment. He stops everything he's doing. when, when, When necessary, he silences heaven in order to hear what it is that we're bringing to him. Just as the incense in the tabernacle was so precious and pleasant as it drifted towards heaven, so too our prayers are to God in the same way. We need to remember what Proverbs chapter 15 and verse eight tells us. The prayer of the upright is his delight. Are you upright? Oh, I'm not asking if you have gotten your, your act together as a Christian. Are you upright because of what Christ has done for you and the faith you've placed in him? Has he covered you with his righteousness? If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you can say yes to that. He has covered you with his righteousness. And that makes you upright, regardless of your failures. It still makes you upright in his sights. And his, he looks and he says to you, your prayers are my delight. He wants them. He welcomes them. He delights in them. And he silences heaven in order to hear them.